Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. We have a fun episode for you guys today. As usual, we've got Ted Gashu on the podcast. That's right. He runs Type 7, and he got his start in the auto industry with Petrolysis back in the day. But it started a little bit earlier than that, even. And he's going to tell us about that amongst some photography stuff and some travel stuff as well. So he'll be on later. We've got a little bit of news, and we have some uh, some updates, some personal updates as well. Well, but before we get into that, what have you got for us? Yeah, let's take a moment to talk about Petrolbox. Petrolbox is an awesome monthly subscription service specifically made for the automotive enthusiasts. And what's really cool, it's like getting a gift in the mail every single month. They carefully select items including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, publications. They box it up and send it right there to the doorstep. Some of my favorite t-shirts in my closet are from Petrolbox, just like cool t-shirts and memorabilia. And they have like little garage gizmos and multi-tools. It's really cool stuff. There are actually two levels of subscription to choose from. The Petrobox Basic costs less than 20 bucks a month. It's $19.95. Or you can have the Petrobox Premium, which gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Be sure to check them out at mypetrolbox.com and use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month's order. All right, so I've got a little thought experiment for you, and this is a little off topic, but this is something that I've been thinking about, and Uh I know a lot of other people are thinking about right now. And uh, so I I wanted to ask you, why did we enter World War II? Oh, wow, this this is much more serious than I would have thought. Yeah, this is fairly serious. Okay. Why did we get into World War II? Um, well, I think it's a multi-factored thing from, I'm thinking back to my high school history lessons now. (laughs) Um, I think a, it was the threat of the war spilling over to our shores, right? Mm -hmm. We were being somewhat proactive to make sure that we didn't get invaded by the Nazis and the other Axis forces. And also I think it was this sense of, um, alliedness trying to help out our allies in Europe. Yeah, but we weren't. We weren't doing anything in the in the beginning. Uh, that's not true. Well, we were I mean, we were sending supplies, a lot of troops okay? and supplies. We were sending troops and supplies, but we weren't involved in the war. We resisted. It was being very involved. yeah. We were reluctant to. We were no very, one wanted to enter another war. Why were we reluctant to enter the war? Because it's a huge drain on human capital. It's a drain on the economy. It's a drain on everything. And I, war is never good. It's not fun. It's not a party. Right. People don't want to go enter into war. Correct. So, but why did we end up getting into the war? We were attacked at Pearl Harbor, right? That was oh, the right. That's that the was, catalyst, of course. That was the that catalyst. Says, okay. Yes. Okay. Why is that, the, is that the short answer you were looking for? Oh, Pearl Harbor. Okay. Yes. No. Just, I like your answer. It was. Okay. It was good. So we got into the war because of Pearl Harbor, right. technically, but that's not really the reason why we got it. That's not the reason why anyone goes to war. Right. Okay? When you go to war, what are you protecting? You're protecting. I guess all of your resources and freedom at home. You're protecting your own livelihood as a country. Right. But even more so than that, you're protecting your way of life. Yep. Right. You're because you're not really protecting people necessarily the, the lives of people. You're not really protecting that because even if um, someone like, let's say someone invades, uh, invades America and takes over America, the vast majority of citizens aren't just going to die. We're right. going to be here, but what will die. Did you ever watch the man in the high castle? I did. Yeah, it was weird. It is weird. But is yeah, weird. okay. So if that happened, you're right. People don't necessarily, it's not like everyone dies it's because not, they it's not the, it's not it's the, the death way of, of life. It's the death of the way of life. Okay. I think I know where you're going with this. Uh, all right. This so, is going to get political. So what do we do in war? What ha- what happens? No, it it doesn't have to be. Okay. It doesn't okay. have to be. I'm not going to, it doesn't have to be. This is just a thought experiment. Okay? okay. So when you go to war, what happens? Right. You send however many boys right. to go die. In war, right? Okay. So we send American young boys to Germany, to Poland, to France, to North Africa, to, right. j- to some shitty fucking island in Japan to die. Why? To protect our way of life. Right. And that's what you always think of when you think of um, the sacrifices that people made. Sure. You, yeah. you say says, they died so that you can have your freedom. Here. So you can have your freedom here. Right. I'm trying to figure out what we're doing here. I'm trying to figure out what we're sacrificing here and what's happening with our way of life here. Now, the difference is 
is that people aren't volunteering to die right now. They're just well, dying. A, they're not. They're not volunteering. A draft is not volunteering either, Chris. The, the people do volunteer right now. I'm talking about in today's army. People volunteer. Okay. They go off to war and they, and they die protecting this country and protecting right. our freedoms. Um, yes, in World War II, no, they were they were forced to send out and die. So that's actually more more relevant because they were drafted to go right. fight. And I'm just trying to figure out what the effect of what we're doing now is. Sure. Okay, because we're we've had the economy and we've had the world shut down for you know for a couple of months now. And as th- as time goes on, things we can't just keep sending sending people stimulus checks. Right. No. We we just can't. If there's not enough money. Well, that and the economy isn't supporting it. The economy's tanking and we're sending out money to right. try to prop it up, but that money, where's the money coming from? It nowhere. Right. It doesn't nowhere. It's it's just debt, basically. It's just piling on. It's like trillions and trillions of dollars. Right. And at some point, the economy will get so bad that I think I'm really scared about this, is that it's going to change our way of life permanently. Mm-hmm. It's going to change the way that um, freedom is perceived, right? The, the way that government and um, uh, p- powerful individuals, maybe not even in government, maybe corporations, whatever. This could sure. be just the, the way powerful individuals take control and change things and i'm not i'm not saying take control as in um japanese internment camps take control i'm taking i'm talking about taking control as in um regulatory control or uh or changing the way that the core values of america is the way that it exists as we've known it in the past yeah okay so let's say um at some point does this lead to universal basic income Right. As we have 30% of the people, we have 15 to 17% unemployment right now, which is, I think California just said, we're going to be locked down for another, they're locking down for another three months, Los Angeles County wow. or whatever it is, something like that. I don't remember the exact time frame, but it's a long time here. It got extended. It's going to get extended out into June. Mm-hmm. Okay. At what point do we go? Okay. Hold on a second. Yes. Cause this is what you run into this thing where people go, well, if it saves one life, right? If right. it saves one life, it's worth it. But you can't make policy that way because then you're frozen, right? right. You're, 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 you're the analogy we've used in the past is we still people still drive on the freeway, right? If right. they shut down the freeway and no one was allowed to drive, it would save lives, right? So we have to we have freedom always comes with risk, right? For sure, and policy is always decided by how, what benefits society, what benefits. Um, what benefits the individual too, of course, and it's all a compromise. Mm-hmm. And I keep saying people, well, this, like, if we do this, this X amount of people are going to die. And if you, and if you think that we should open up, you're a murderer, you know, and it's, it's becoming this. And my point is, I want, I just want people to just open their mind a little bit and not be so, I'm really, really disappointed to see this entire debate and this entire, I know this isn't car related, but I wanted to get it off my chest and I think it's important. And I think people listen to the podcast like to hear what you and I have to say. Okay. I really want people to not be so partisan on this. Right. Right I, now. I don't understand how it became such a political issue. It became issue. extremely political that one side thinks that everything should open up and mm-hmm. the other side goes, no, 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 it's, we can't. Right. But I think we need to step back and go, Okay. There's other generations other than ours. What are we doing to future generations? What's going on with our kids? What kind of future are they going to be brought into? What is the economy going to be like? Mm-hmm. And when you say economy, it seems like this, oh, it's something that's just this money thing, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not. It's not. It's people's dreams. It's people's time and energy that they just spent 15 years in for their little restaurant that they've got. Yep. Like my favorite restaurant, The Nook. Mm-hmm. is probably going to close. Yeah. Murray Steakhouse, probably going to close. Yeah, a lot of places are closing. A lot of places are going to close. And it's not places that are closing. No, it's, it's, it's people's, people's lives. Yeah. People's lives are closing. That's their entire livelihood, everything that they poured all their time, energy into. That's life. Yeah. That's That means the death of the everything that they built. Mm-hmm. And I just, I know that things are dangerous. I think what we need to do is we need to protect the most vulnerable. Right. And everybody else needs to take responsibility or take the risks that they want to take. And I think one thing that people are afraid of is they don't want to put the impetus on the individual to have to make the choice of whether they're going to go out or not. Cause it doesn't seem like a fair choice. 
Like other people are going out, they're taking the risk. I don't want to take the risk. Therefore, nobody else should be able to go out either sure. because they're scared to take the risk. But if you have 4,999 white marbles and one black marble and you say, hey, if you don't choose a marble, you're going to lose everything you have. Whereas if you choose the black marble, you're going to die. You understand what I'm saying? It's I, it's I, the one in 5,000 chance. Okay. Most people are going to say, I'm going to reach in and choose a marble because I need to live my life. I think most people would choose that. Okay. You don't agree with me? I do. I do. Um, yeah. I, I'm just, you're right, because there are long-term effects. Think of how 9-11 changed the world. Right. Absolutely. And I think this will have a significant lasting impact as well. This is a world economy problem. Mm -hmm. It's a world economy. These are people's lives that are being destroyed all around the world. I do like the idea of, okay, personal responsibility. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people who are saying everyone should stay home are the ones who have stayed home. And then you drive by the Home Depot parking lot and it's like lines out the door for some reason. And people right. are all crazy. So they're like, why? No, we should tell these people they can't do that. Right. Yeah, I don't know. It's, I, just, I just had thoughts of, of Americans and individuals making sacrifice for the betterment of future generations. Mm. And, I, and I think that we're being selfish by saying that we can just stay inside forever. Because I think it's going to have dire consequences to them. We're seeing pushback on that already. I, I hope so. And I hope that... Um, I'm not trying to be political here. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I just really hope that people you know, wake up, open up. My dreams are at risk too. Yeah, for sure. You know, all the work I was going to do this, this summer is gone. You know, $20,000, $30,000 worth of work for me. Gone, right. gone, disappeared because of this. Yeah. You know, work that I was going to do next year, gone. You know, uh, sponsors for the podcast, everybody's holding their, their purse strings really tight because right. nobody knows what's going on. So there's less money here. I mean, these are all, it is a hugely complex machine that's being strangled. And I, I just, I fear for, for the dreams of other, of, of other people and what's going to happen. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's for future people's dreams and the people who had already reached their dreams that are having them taken away. I think that is a invaluable part of, of the, of the human condition that's being, you know, eliminated just so people can feel safe and don't have to be scared. You know, fear is powerful. For sure. And I think we need to fight that. Well, regardless of whether you're staying home or not, do you know one thing you can do? What's that? You can polish your car, Chris. You can? Yes. Oberk is a Midwest manufacturer of polishing compounds and supplies that's research tested and developed by professional detailers. Oberk products are designed to decimate swirls, holograms, and all that oxidation on your vehicle's paint. And right now, Oberk is offering a 20% off of any order with the code OVERCREST. Now, this discount code is good not only on OBERCCARCARE.com, but also on a couple of their partners' websites. You have CarSuppliersWarehouse.com and DetailedImage.com. And I, I keep saying, I need to get out there and get on my buffing compound because I have used their product, and it really does work. So check those guys out. All right. I would like to welcome on Ted Gashu to the podcast. We hope you guys enjoy this. We'll see you after the interview. Mr. Ted Gashu, man, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and taking time to spend with us today. My pleasure, guys. Greetings from London. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's been interesting watching. You know, I've been following you for a really, really long time. And at first I was kind of like, who the hell is this guy? You know, he's, <laughs> he's traveling all over the world. He's doing all these different things. And then as I've kind of followed, I've kind of learned what you do. And uh, you're in charge of Type 7. You kind of got your start. Uh, not your start, but you started working with cars at Petrolicious, right? Yeah, um, I got my start in media in New York. Uh, I, I was a DJ for a couple of years uh, from 2010 to like 2012. What kind of DJ? And I started, what, what kind of music was this? I got to know. Um, it was all over the place. You know, I, I worked in some pretty like high end hotels and some pretty high end nightclubs. So I did a lot of uh, I guess at that point it would have been still like Electro Clash, Disco, um, you know, a lot of just like really great uh, uh, uptown kids going downtown kind of party music and <laughs> right. uh, uh, I, I made a ton of cash out of it it was, it was, a, it was a good couple of years and then it just wasn't a sustainable long-term business so I uh, 
I ended up going into um, management consulting for a year. I did a, le- a year of leadership training for a small consulting firm. That's quite a jump uh, going from in- DJing to <laughs> consulting. Well, sure, but I had a degree in finance, and I went to I went to like you know school to learn stuff that wasn't DJing, obviously. And then it was 2009 when I started trying to find my internship um, as a junior in college, and uh, it was the total financial crisis. So I ended up, uh, you know, through some personal family connections, I got a an internship at um, at Merrill Lynch right before the crash, and then that disappeared. And so my whole career that I'd worked for in finance uh, evaporated in front of me, um, mm-hmm. which is kind of funny because it's, uh, you know, when, when you when you are at a young age, you, you live through a few of these crises, you, you start to like, you, you start to just accept that entropy is, is the law of the universe, uh, that nothing is kind of given. So, you know, that in 2009, 2010, I totally abandoned that notion of career path. And uh, and was just and threw myself into the only other skill set I had at the time, which was uh, DJing. And so I DJed in college and worked for Red Bull in college, and then uh, ended up. Um, yeah, in 2010, I, I moved directly to New, uh, New York after I graduated. And uh, hold on a second, do you think that that that, uh, that notion of the the entropy thing that you mentioned is kind of interesting? I think that's something that over the last 50 years has become more apparent. I think the the career path as it existed in the early 20th century is what doesn't exist anymore, right? Yes, it's dead, totally dead. And and I accepted that and I started saying, you know, once you accept that, it totally frees you. You know, you're no longer sorry, I'm eating some chocolate here. You're no longer <laughs> you you're no longer stuck in this path that you didn't necessarily even want. Like, you know, how often do you run into your friend who's like in med school? for their seventh year in a row and it's just like i want to kill myself but actually they want to play banjo and like you know uh, a dixie band or something who knows like there's just this whole concept of of following your heart and following what's your your passion that's that was always kind of given lip service you know or mouth service paid whatever you want to call that people always said oh you gotta follow your passion but no one actually really believed it they were like you should still go to business school um and then once everything kind of hit, started hitting the fan in 09, everyone was just like, you know what? Everything's fucked. Like, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well. Yeah. And and now, I mean, look at the situation we're in now. Like, everything's really fucked. Like, royally fucked. And everyone's like, whoa. And I'm like, well, yeah. Like, that, the, the entropy. <laughs> it's a law. And uh, it's a law. Of, it's a, What is it? The fourth law of thermodynamics. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's like, yeah. Once you kind of accept that. You're, it, it relieves so much stress in your life because it allows you to pursue things much more like a you know a body of water or a flowing river, and so my career path has been that it's been you know one one long series of of doors that opened into rooms that had doors that opened into rooms that had doors, and uh, and so which led me through um, a couple of years as a management consultant. I did, I did a year of consulting with NASA, with Dow Jones. Uh, I was like 22 years old and working with NASA, uh, which was fucking hilarious. And then, um, <laughs> after that, I ended up, uh, my friend was t- taking over control of the New York observer newspaper, which is, uh, owned by Jared Kushner, the nephew of, uh, or the son-in-law of Donald Trump. <laughs> And they needed a nightlife reporter in New York City, and uh, and I I happened to be dumb enough to try it, and and I did okay at it for a year. And then, that must have been wild. Uh, nightlife reporter. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, what stories did you not write? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I, we, I just I went to every party for a year in New York, and I, I wasn't so interested in gossiping about people. Like I'm, I'm a pretty positive person, and I'm I'm also pretty empathetic, so my ability to sit there and say like, uh, you know, you're a scandalous douchebag or something is like pretty low. Um, so it was mainly me just like talking to really interesting people, getting to know as many people as I could within that, that year, just cause I, in the back of my mind, I'm like, I got to network the hell out of this for sure. So that mm-hmm. I can, and prove to them that I can do something else so that I can go figure out what that next thing is. Cause I knew I wasn't going to be a party reporter for my whole life. And then, do you uh, think that attitude is kind of, just always been with you The I got to figure out how to, you know, make the next thing. And you're constantly looking for it. 
Yeah, I'm a bit of a scrapper that way. Like I'm, I'm, I've always just been somebody who's very open to, you know, conversations. I mean, like you and I don't really know each other, but like you sent me a message once on Instagram and I was like, Hey, what's up? You know, like I, I never know where that stuff's going to lead. Right. And, and so I, I try to say yes to everybody, which at this point in my career is getting a little, uh, a, a bit much like the, there's a lot of, uh, really lovely people that send me a lot of really great notes every day. And it's, it's, it's tough to triage everything in a way that, that pays um, respect to those people who've taken time to contact me and respect to what they want to say. So uh, I will definitely say that, you know, as, as your career starts to starts, it begins and starts, I would say that to anybody, like talk to every single person you can. And um, I, no one's even asked me for this advice. I'm just giving advice now. No, that's okay. <laughs> this is <laughs> this this podcast is also a flowing river, as you would say. It's it's fine. But yeah, I, I just uh, I, I found myself always in these positions where I was uh, just trying to find out more. And you know, I would talk to bankers, I would talk to lawyers, I would talk to doctors, I would talk to you know artists, I would talk to everybody, I would talk to Republicans, Democrats. Like I never ever closed myself off because of somebody's perceived background or biases. Like I've got people who I'm close with on all sides of all spectrums. And I'm quite proud of that because it means that I get, you know, I get, I get perspective from everybody, which I think allows me to do my job better ultimately that I'm doing now. Um, you know, we have a lot of people that we know in, in our world, in the car world that are like, Oh, I'm just, I'm just a Porsche guy or I'm just a blank guy. And it's like, well, or it's like, I'm just a car guy, but I don't, I don't like art and culture. It's like, well, you're missing out, man. Like right. cars, cars are part of it. Cars are part of the solution. You know, like, so so is dating so is uh consuming media so is like traveling so for me that's always just been like how do i find this really healthy mixture of everything and that's ultimately what's kind of been distilled down into the current project which is type seven which we were uh my which my production company is uh or my uh, consulting firm is, is is producing for Porsche. Um, and it's, it's been a great journey and it's, but you can really see it. If you look at the feed and you look at the book we put out, it's, you know, it's not just like 75 stories of like nice dudes with nice Porsches. It's like, that's, that's a third of it or a fourth of it at most. And, uh, it's, it's about an exploration about how all these things intersect and it's, and it's been a fun ride. So I see you post about your father quite a bit on your social media. Can you tell us how he influenced your life when you were growing up? Yeah, I mean, he's like everyone else that I know, uh, or many of the people that I know uh, who are car guys. You, you just, you know, you got you, your first vector into the car world would have been the person who was driving you as you were a kid. And for me, it was my dad, obviously, and my mom. My, my parents were both just like cool cool car people and you know we've my, my, my father's an architect and who's got a lot of great taste and he's worked um worked really hard to kind of make sure that he's always around things that are great beauty despite however well his business is doing which uh, obviously at the moment right now it's doing pretty terribly because it's you know he, he's a high-end architect well uh, he's lived through a lot builds. of ups and downs in that by now i'm sure yeah, exactly. So like we've never, there's been points in my childhood where we had money and we would like, you know, rent a, a vacation house in Bermuda for two weeks or something. And then there's been points where it's like, we didn't have money to buy a, a whole chicken. So we had to buy a half chicken. And, and and there's been all points in between. And, and that also kind of really, that inconsistency, um, that financial inconsistency kind of bred in me this sort of attitude of like, it's always going to work out whatever the situation is. Um, Cause our family's always done fine. You know, we, like right now we're like, my parents aren't doing that great financially, but they're having a great time. Like they're, you know, they're still cruising around in their old cars and, and, uh, and whatever, but they're not like on top of the world um, and like, you know, buying fucking skyscrapers. Um, but they're, they're, they enjoy their life, uh, which is what I've always taken away from their kind of collective life experience, which is just to, to believe that even if it doesn't look like it, it's going to be fine. What, what did that do to the car uh, life and, and as you were growing up, that contrast and the, the ups and downs? What, I mean, what were you driving around in? What, what kind of cars existed at that time? Well, we, we could never afford new cars because we would uh, like at the points when we finally have enough cash to go 
you know, buy some new car, like buy, you know, in, in the mid nineties, go buy a new Range Rover. We couldn't afford a new Range Rover. So instead our garage would be like a 1985, 300 TD uh, wagon. It would be, you know, a Euro spec uh, sunroof delete uh, 2.7 S like it, it would be, uh, it would be all these cars that now today we see everyone trading at like crazy multiples and crazy numbers and collecting. But back then these were just like fucking old cars. These were shitty old cars that nobody really wanted. And, and your dad, dad was driving was like, around, well, driving around for the gram, right? He was just, you know, martyring himself <laughs> and driving these things around for likes on social media. Correct. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, he, he, he just loved them. And he, so he, my grandfather, uh, my, my paternal grandfather was an engineer, uh, uh, he, my late paternal grandfather was an engineer and he, um, as part of his you know, weekend projects with his two boys, my uncle and my father, um, this was pre insurance write-off kind of, uh, or insurance, like fixing your car back then in the sixties and, you know, the late fifties, early sixties through the, through the mid early seventies, if you totaled your nine eleven, you just had to kind of sell the scrap and like deal with it. So you would like list it in the local penny saver and somebody would just come buy it for the, whatever the value was. And then your insurance would pay out the difference. It, it was a, it was a much sloppier system than what we have today. Um, so my, their hobby was to go buy cars that had been written off and restore them. And, but they had a pension for your, I wonder if that's where my so, car came from. <laughs> Cause my car was after what I found is, was definitely a write off at some point. Someone fixed it up in their garage for sure. Yeah. I mean, but they, they always pride themselves on doing really top quality work. And my uncle spent uh, about a decade owning a body shop and doing great work on nine elevens. But, uh, but the, what was interesting about what they, I mean, they, cause you back then in, in the, in the 70, early seventies, late sixties, early seventies, you know, you could get access to cars that, to, that today you just would never be able to touch. Like, like my, my grandfather had a three thirty GTC, that he bought for, for like four or five grand and like fixed up. And then when, when he sold it at like 25 grand was like blown away. Um, and so that was the thing they, they would buy these cars, fix them and then flip them. And they just would always have a rotating stable. So it'd be like a Lotus Europa, you know, we've got all these epic photos of their driveway, uh, in the seven early seventies. Um, and it's just so much fun. Like then, because that was, a, that was an approachable hobby back then. You know, you weren't like you—you you weren't messing around with a museum quality car. You were—you—you you were just fixing up some cool little sports car to go, you know, rock it around in. It's hard and to do that, that these that, days. That, it's really, really hard. Like I'm just a—I would just consider myself in the same vein as that. I kind of buy these cars that maybe need something and kind of fix them up and drive them around. But as time as goes on, this this bring a trailer phenomenon. All these classic cars are getting expensive. Anything that you can work on these days and kind of do that with. It's almost unaffordable. Just doing my front pan on my car, I did. I'm eight thousand dollars just into into materials just to do it. You know, it's so hard to do that these days. Dude, my my nine eleven that I drive now is insured while I'm over in the UK for thirty eight thousand pounds, which is roughly let's call it forty five to fifty, depending on the value of the dollar. Um, I, I was just dicking around looking at an auto trader over here and I, I tried to find that, you know, there's a very similar two seven S mine's a three, two. Now we've did the engine swap, but like two seven S not in as good condition. Like I wanted 70,000 pounds. <laughs> and the and problem with like, that is what? it raises all the, like the parts prices go up too. Mm -hmm. like my fenders for my car were $2,000 for the fenders. You know, I sold my yeah. ratty fenders for $500 that need everything. It's, it yeah, makes well, it really, really hard. Th there are guys out there, uh, like you know, God bless them, like uh, like Rod Emery or any of these kind of guys that that just have these warehouses with like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of parts uh, for each part, and and you're like, oh, that's why there's just a bunch of dudes stockpiling all that's left. But um, and it never used I'm to be that way. To your point, like your your father and your grandfather, you know, it could have been they didn't have to pay two grand for a fender back then. Yeah. Well, so this all leads me back to my point of that my my dad and my grandfather didn't think of themselves as car guys. They they were car guys, like they liked cars, 
but they weren't like, it just wasn't a weird hobby. Like it's, if you said that you did this today, you'd be like, Whoa, you're some sort of guru. Like, Whoa. But like back then it was like, yeah, you know, in, in the same way that club racing was normalized, like going to Bahama speed week wasn't, you know, there was like two or three guys there that knew what they were doing. And the rest were just like rich dudes who were bored. And it's like, that was, it was just a much, it was a much more casual atmosphere for automotive, uh, enthusiasm. It wasn't so much of a market back then. And, uh, and so that was just the, the, the way that the relationship that my family has always had with cars. And we've just always ended up having really interesting cars. So like the car I, I drive, my dad bought from, uh, his, his late friend, Myron Schuster in 1992 for 5,000 us. And it was, a it was, he was, the, we were the second owners of this two seven S, uh, from, uh, 1976, two seven S and it was just part of our lives uh, forever. And then uh, finally, you know, we needed some work. So we took it to, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, it, it used to be called Farnbach Farn Knowles. Then it, now it's speed sport tuning and the guy just passed away. I, I keep talking about all these people that just recently died. Um, Spencer, Spencer over at, uh, at speed sport tuning in Darien, uh, Danbury, Connecticut. He did the first restoration on the car and did a great job and then put the three, two in, the three two came from um, uh, L.A. dismantlers. Who sure. were like, if you ever if you ever buy in parts, you come across L.A. dismantlers, and all their stuff still has blood on it. And uh, <laughs> Jesus, and, and yeah, they're a whole wild business. But the um, yeah, and then and then so th- then when I moved out to L.A. after leaving, I, I had a magazine in New York. I did for a couple of years with Thrillist Media Group. Uh, so I worked for Thrillist.com for. For two years and started a brand for them and then i got approached to go work for petrolicious and i took the offer um and just you know really wanted to to see what that whole world of niche media looked like while also allowing me to to explore my own family's heritage with cars because because you know, back to my point cars it wasn't a spectacular thing to me to be into cars it was like yeah we have cool cars around they're old we can't afford new cars like my whole childhood, all I ever wanted was like a Ford with, um, you know, the connect like in-car entertainment system. That was like the coolest thing to me. <laughs> but instead we had, you know, we, we had a short wheelbase Range Rover, like gray market imports from the mid eighties with a Becker stereo like, or something. <laughs> oh, dude, no, we, we had a, uh, we had, we, we owned the Peter, uh, Peter Lovanos imported the gray market in so Peter Lovanos at the time in 85 owned uh, Aston Martin with my friend's father, uh, Victor Gauntlet. And he had a house in Greenwich, Connecticut. We're from Connecticut. And he gray market imported this car um, that had the lower seats and a choke. Like it was, it was like a very early uh, Range Rover. And, uh, and, and it was just the coolest, most rugged thing, but it was always such a rust bucket I have such vivid memories. There was one point when we were driving up to Vermont to go skiing for the weekend. And, uh, and I, I literally like had a stick in the back seat and I poked it through the hole in the floor beneath my feet in the back seat and was just like dragging it on the ground on the highway. (laughs) 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 Or or like the one or the time when my dad took it to, um, uh, vintage, uh, vintage autos in Stamford, Connecticut. We, uh, he took it in there and the, and the, and the body guy there and, and the body guy was like working on like, you know, 250 GTEs, like just like really classic, like Ferraris. But in the early nineties, these were just like rust buckets. No one gave a shit. So, you know, he would also, the same guy who was working on the, the local, like Concord grade, um, you know, Ferraris and Aston Martins and all this stuff was also like the guy who was swapping out, um, uh, the fuel tank in my dad's gray market Range Rover. So he, my dad was like, look, it's just leaking fuel everywhere. It's rusting. It, it, it's falling apart. It's turning to dust. And Marion was like, okay, uh, I've got one here. That's a little bit less rusty. <laughs> and then my, my, <laughs> and then my dad's like, well, swap it in. Hell yeah. And he, you know, gave him like 200 bucks to like swap in this slightly less rusty, gas tank and that that was just like kind of our vibe you know uh, not not quite beverly hillbillies but like definitely you know we, we had a lot of fun toys but they were always like in that state when do you think things changed from just guys that just like cars but they didn't even know it like your dad and you're you're your grandfather to 
now it's guys who, in my opinion, guys who like cars because they wanted other guys that like cars to see how much they like cars is what <laughs> seems like this is going on now. When Do you think it's all social media's fault or is there some other thing well, at play? No, look, there's always been people that, that patronize certain sides of the car world. You know, if, if you go to a, a, you know, any, any Mark meetup on a Sunday morning anywhere, you know, you've got a lot of people there who are flexing and posturing, just like you, you would have somebody, if you were into collecting a uh, baseball card, you go to a baseball card convention. There's the guy who's like, and eh, it's a Mickey mantle, <laughs> you know, like there's always, there's always been people trying to flex on each other. That's not a new phenomenon. Uh, I think what you're referring to is that now there is this kind of uh, cultural cachet uh, because these cars are in vogue um, that people are trying to capitalize on, you know, so uh, and and trying to, to leverage some sort of uh, authenticity from that world to take it back into um, to take they they want to capitalize it in some way. So they want to get laid because they've got this cool classic car and like, you know, whatever it is. I think that's probably because of social media now at an all time high because, but like, but, but again, I I just don't think it's anything new. Like you always had people buying cars to look cool or you always had people buying, you know, look at every trope in every movie. The guy pulls up in the Ferrari and is like, what's up, babe? You know, it's like, (laughs) it's, People have been buying cars to, for the wrong reasons for a long time. I, I, I just don't. I don't. I don't think that's a new thing. I think, you know, I, I think our cameras are higher definition now, probably. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess there was dudes with probably a back. Their back pocket had Polaroids of their of their whatever car there with their go. whatever chick on it that they pull out for their buddies. And be like, hey, check out this chick. I got to take a picture on my car. Look at this Polaroid. I mean, I'm sure it's been. Yeah, like, dude. Uh, I mean, I've I, I've I've been around for 31 years now. Like, I've definitely been to like weird fucking car meetings where it's just like a bunch of weirdos and they're acting weird. It's like, yeah, whatever. Like, there's always gonna in every thing. There's always gonna be strange people that act a weird way, but. I have no complaint about you know, anyone in particular in, in the car world because they're, everyone's doing their own thing. Like, you know, I, I'm good friends with Magnus and people like, so I have some friends who are, who are like, how do you hang out with that guy? Like, you know, what's his vibe? Like what, why? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know, he's, a, he's a cool dude. And he, he's just like a really laid back guy. And he doesn't, you know, his Instagram presence might be that he's kind of evangelizing for a certain lifestyle or we're like, you know, whatever. But it, when you when you get to know him, you're like, oh, this is just somebody who's doing their thing, and would be doing the exact same thing with or without a camera in front of him. Um, you know, putting a camera in front of somebody, obviously, is, as everyone knows, uh, enables a certain, you know, latent narcissism that maybe we we didn't understand that we had inside of ourselves. But I don't know, like all these personalities that have emerged out of the car world, like everyone I've met. I'm I'm like always usually delighted and I and and I just I don't sit home without knowing somebody and like judging them. So, so speaking of the camera, when when did you when did photography really take a hold of you? You know, because that seems to be a big part of your repertoire as the you know you carry around the Leica and you're shooting and you're creating this content. Is that something that you know you started on early with, or where did it come from? Yeah, my I I, um, I begged, begged, begged my dad to buy me a digital camera. Uh, I think my my grandfather gave me a digital camera when I was like maybe ten or twelve years old, like a super early one that was just totally useless. And um, and then I just was always kind of just into the idea, uh, you know, conceptually. Like I I didn't think of being a photographer. I was just like, wow, so cool to be able to capture a picture. That, you know, right around that period where digital was just in its infancy. I think we were all totally transfixed as kids. Like, whoa, I can cool. see this right you know? like, now. I can see it right now. Yeah. It's just magical. And, and so that's what that definitely got me in as a kid. And then I think when I was around 15, 16, uh, we, we, uh, we, we somehow found on eBay, like, uh, what was it? Like it, it was a really, this was like before the five D came out, this was like a really early, I want to say like, you know, a, a Canon digital from like 2002, like a 60D or, or something maybe. like that, something older. I think, I think it, I think it was a 60D with yeah. like you know a six megapixel sensor or something, or you know something just minuscule. Um, <coughs> and he found it on eBay used, and my dad's obsessed with eBay. Like today, I called him up. I'm like, 
hey, uh, I'm looking for like a martini and Rossi ashtray to put on my back patio. And he's like, I've got three of them already. I just bought them off eBay last week. (laughs) (laughs) And so so he, or he called me the other day. He's like, "Uh, did you know you can buy Marcana almonds on eBay? I just bought a pound. And I'm like, what are you doing? (laughs) He's upset. I'm like, daddy, there's Amazon. Like, you know, like for like, you know, non like i understand if you want like weird martini rossi ashtrays like fine but if you're like buying almonds like there's there's gotta be more like <laughs> right less whatever he's, he's we i've been an ebay member since 97 and he's i think he's been an ebay member since like 96 or 95 so it's like it's part of his nature i guess um but the um i don't know where i was going so you got the camera you got the 60d or whatever yeah, yeah. It was. and then it was just I was like tooling around with, with skateboards with my, with my neighborhood buddies and I just started shooting and then um, I get to college and they're like, pick your major. And I'm like, uh, I want to become a trader. I want to do structured finance. I want to, I want to learn by LBOs, blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, it was, uh, I want to do all that stuff. Why did and you think you wanted like, to do that stuff? What, what was, uh, what was it in to, you? I, I, I wanted to be able to have the money to buy a house that my dad built because he built these houses for people that were like mega bankers. And I was just like, you know, it seemed like the cool kind of noble slash like my son's finally made it kind of thing. That would be a cool thing. I didn't really have any existential reason. I was just like, I wanted money and I want to do cool shit uh, with that money, like building houses and like, you know, whatever, Uh, which obviously is something that you only really understand that you don't necessarily want as you grow older. But when you're, you know, 17 18 whatever how old was i when i got to college whatever you're like yeah you know it seems like especially at that time like in 06 like people on wall street were gods and so (coughs) i didn't know any better that that's not what that that actually wasn't the career i wanted but at the time i was like that sounds exactly like what i want because i grew up in a in a community that was living outside of new york city filled with people that worked in New York city in those markets. So all my friends, parents had mega houses and I grew up in a very affluent community as a, as one of the kids that didn't really have much money, but had taste and style or whatever. So it was always like a chip on my shoulder, I guess that I didn't have like the, the fuck you house or like, the, you know, my parents, they, they still live in a, in a very stylish, but very modern, uh, modest, um, kind of two bedroom condominium uh, and my dad's building 10 bedroom houses and my friend's dads all have 10 bedroom houses. And I was like, well, I want to be the dad with a 10 bedroom house. Cause that's what, you know, that's what you look up to at the time. Um, but it's not obviously, you know, as you grow up and as you learn, it's maybe not what you really want. So yeah, I, I, I wanted all that stuff. And then, but in the back of my head, I was like, well, I still really like photography. So my minor, I selected my minor as fine art photography. And then, uh, and I really enjoyed it. Shot film all through college and just was, you know, became obsessed and, and what did you shoot with? with the camera. Um, I was shooting with the equivalent of, it would have been like the, the 5d, but like the, the last film version. Sure. Um, like the, I can't remember the name of it. Like a rebel something or. No, no, no. This would have, this was because you could buy in 2006, 2007, you could buy like mega pro level cameras um, for nothing because no one was even shooting film anymore. So by, you know, 07, like the 5D Mark I was out, like, uh, you know, or I I think it was or whatever. Like there was pro level cameras out there in digital that people could work with. So film cameras are dead. And so for 200, 200 bucks, you could buy like a top, top, top tier you know, uh, Canon film camera. And that, right. that's on eBay. Boom. Dad, dad grabbed me one. But then, yes, just started off with the, with the classic 51.8. We couldn't afford lenses. You could buy bodies for like 200 bucks, but like obviously lenses were still real money. So all I could really afford was the, the 51.8. Yeah. The nifty 50, man. That's, that's the, that's the lens. I mean, I love that lens because when you take it with a full frame camera or a 35, you pull it up to your eye and you look through it and you pull it down and you look at what you're looking at. It's really, really close to the the focal length that we see as human beings. So especially for someone yeah, just starting eye. out or, or walking, it's a great walking around lens because it really captures, you know, what you see, literally what you see just in terms of the focal length. Yeah, exactly. So when did, uh, uh, when did you start thinking photography was, was something that 
was I mean, it seems to encompass you quite a bit with with the social media stuff and and all the photography you do. You seem really proud of what you do. When did it become really really important to you? Uh, well, in 2015, I got to Petrolicious and was like ready to start taking over that business and and growing it for them. And you know, they basically uh, Opsheen gave me the reins, and I was like, okay, I got the reins. Here we go. And then I looked down, and the reins had no cash attached to them. So. Like we had such a small budget to produce everything. I think my my monthly content budget for from 2015 to 2017, it didn't change. It was four thousand dollars a month. Wow. Um, to to run all the content that wasn't video related on the website, so uh, I I could do so little with that. I I went from having I went from having a ten thousand dollar a month like discretionary expense account for meals at my last magazine. To having a four thousand dollar month, everything, including uh, photos, pictures, words, everything, um, budget to produce the whole thing. Uh, I had my, my salary, but that was our, our our budget to produce whatever. So yeah, um, and I had to get creative. And it, the, the cheapest person to hire was myself because I was already on salary, obviously. So I was like, I know how to take a picture. And then I, I you know, I went and bought an old five D Mark One, um, and then bought some decent glass or borrowed some glass or whatever I could and just kind of got to work and started shooting cars. So I went and started trying to find interesting guys and girls who had cars. And I just, over the course of that, those first few months in 2015, I, I, I just shot like a madman. And then, and then, uh, who was it? I got introduced to an interesting guy, uh, named Matt Jacobson, uh, through my friend, Justin Schaefer. Justin Schaefer is, uh, really great pal he um super super bright man he he invented um the algorithm or he he invented the codec somehow uh for what became in um facebook video and then he sold that company to facebook where he became a, a partner there or, or whatever like a vice president and then he introduced me to matt jacobson who was employee number five uh, or six or something like that at facebook um, and he lives in Manhattan Beach, and he is also on the board of Leica. And he was like, look, Leica's just come out with this thing called the Leica Q. It's really special. I think it would be really great for you uh, after we got to know each other. And he's like, put down the can and try this. And then so he, I think he lent me one or whatever it was. I got my hands on one, and it was just like, oh, man, this is this is it. And then all of a sudden, I was shooting, you know, two or 3,000 frames a month. Why was it it? You know. What, what what is it about when you say this is it? What do you mean? It was my first time using prime glass that was of that quality. I think um, that was you know so the the, the first like PQ at a, a Summerlux one point seven, or basically it's very special twenty eight millimeter lens um, that I still think takes some of the best images in the world today. Uh, and the way that the the whole like a package kind of one captured my inability to want to carry around a massive SLR. Like I hated that. I hated the way it made me feel. And it's I hated conspicuous. The way that, it's like, conspicuous as hell. Yeah, You just feel like a paparazzi and I didn't want that. I wasn't my vibe. And so I, um, I immediately responded to the objects, you know, it's a beautiful object. If you've ever seen the queue, it's a very small, petite little, full, and it's full frame. Um, and it's got this built-in 28 millimeter lens with uh, with autofocus that is just ridiculously high quality. And uh, I just started. I, I got to work, and uh, I just started shooting every event I went to. I, you know, I think I went to the uh, the second Luftkult uh, event at uh, Modernica. Is that the second one? I think so. And um, and it just went from there. And this camera really kind of allowed me to very quickly generate high quality images that I was proud of um, because I already understood the mechanics of how to take a picture having used SLRs, but this camera bridged a gap to me to get into a place where I was like, wow, that's a great image. Um, and then I took a few images that went sort of viral. Like I took a picture of the GTO engineering short wheelbase 250 replica. Um, uh, you've probably seen the picture that it's, it's like if you, if you're on Instagram, there's like one picture of a, or of a black looking 250 short wheelbase that's just everywhere. It's been stolen a billion times. And that was taken <laughs> on the camera. And it, and it was, and because, because I also had control of the Petrolicious accounts and I was running them, I, and I had no other content because I couldn't afford to buy content. I was publishing my own content. Is it the so photo I'm up on, it like looks lot. like Angela's Crest or something? 
I'm, I, yeah, I just, it's up. It's up. It's up near there. Yeah. Yeah. Or not, no, it's not, it's not not near not near Angel's Crest. It's near. Um, Looks like that it's type off of place. PCH, Solstice Canyon. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so like I would start sharing this content through Petrolicious, and would start getting really great feedback from everybody. Um, because uh, you know when I got there, I think the Petrolicious account was at like twenty thousand fans on Instagram or whatever. Which was a lot to me. Like it wasn't it wasn't immaterial. So I, I would, you know, Petrolicious at the time was, uh, and and still to this day is still like one of these places where everyone's looking at what they're doing. So I got a whole ton of feedback on what I was doing there, and was able to progress as a photographer uh, far quicker than if I had just been a stringer. You know, because I was, I was, I was the stringer. I was also the publisher, and I was the editor and the writer. So I was doing so much work every day that when you, you know, it's, it's a bit like the Beatles 10,000 hour, you know, rule thing. It's like from the Malcolm Gladwell book. It's like you, 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 you do something so often at, at such a rate and, and for, at such a ferocity that you have no option to get, then to get better at it. Right. And then I switched, then I switched to the M system. Um, and that just took me to a different uh, a different plane with with, with the Lycus with the Lycus stuff, which ultimately you know led to a great photography passion, and which ultimately allowed me to have a career after Petrolicious. And what I still get to enjoy is my favorite pastime today. What is the common thread in images you find yourself attracted to when you look at them and you see them when you when you love something? Is there something that kind of goes through the whole spectrum that you love? Um. It doesn't have to be composition. It could be like, what does what it taken of? What, how does it move you? What, what part of a, of a photo is, is what really does it for you? I don't know, man. It's a pretty open-ended question. I, I think it's, uh, there's, there's so many different photographers whose work I respect. You know, I love Martin Parr's work. Um, I'm looking at the Magnum contact sheets book here with just filled with great work. And, um, yeah, we're just, just start naming photographers. that. <laughs> Would, would we'd be here all day yeah, uh, yeah for so sure yeah, I, it, it's it's a it's a whole range of things you know there's so much but what i what i look for is somebody that has a visual style without having necessarily a, a subject matter style you know if, like people tell me um that when i share a picture of something that's non-car they can also tell that it's mine and that, that to me means that i'm getting closer to what I perceive to be doing a good job as a photographer is, is to have a visual identity without necessarily, you know, having to photograph the same thing. Like just because you, you're no longer photographing a car on Angela's crest doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a visual identity. And I think that's, you know, there's a lot of very talented people in our industry that unfortunately fall into that rabbit hole with like, you know, if all they know how to do is photograph a car, like they haven't tried photographing women, they haven't tried photographing, uh, hotels. They haven't tried photographing boats. Like there's just a billion other things, you know, just in terms of subject matter reportage that they haven't tried doing, let alone fine art photography, which is, you know, a whole different animal. So right. I'm, I'm much more intrigued in, in progressing that way. What's the hardest thing for you to shoot? What do you still struggle with? Oh, everything. I'm always learning. I mean, like today, I hadn't taken photos in, in two months, but today I went to my friend Gregor Fiskin's uh, garage in London and, you know, just getting back into feeling like I'm shooting cars again. I haven't done that in, literally since the beginning of March. So it's a strange thing to kind of pick it up after a little while. Um, but uh, everything, everything's, everything's difficult, um, but, but it's, all, all, it's all rewarding in the same way. I had a, another question here, but it seems like you kind of answered it. It's how does someone stand out in a world that's flooded with media? And I think you touching on, you know, how do you, how do you shoot well? What, what makes for a good photographer in terms of, you know, they have a visual style all their own, no matter what it is that they're shooting. Is that one of the ways that you can stand out? Or what do you think is the best way to stand out in, in a world that's just, there's so much content you can, it's hard to even swim without touching another person. Yeah, I, mean, I, I touched upon this. You, you got to have your own visual identity. You know, you've got to have your own style or your own editing style or whatever. You know, a Amy Shore has a really great ability to do this. The photographer Amy, my good friend, uh, you know, whether she's photographing a wedding or uh, you know, uh, Formula One driver or whatever, you know, it's her photo, and that's that's her. That's what makes it special, and that's why you know she doesn't have to put a fucking watermark on her pictures. Like, there's all these people that just they, they take these pictures that are so 
average uh, in terms of identity or DNA that they're actually not necessarily that they have to put a watermark because otherwise it will be stolen uh, because it could be anybody's. You know, and I, I think if you had to put a watermark on your photos, then you, you, you you're not you're not in a good position as a photographer long term because these people are you know they, they haven't put the work in to develop their own style to the point where it's recognizable. So did you choose this wanderlust life or have you adapted to it or did you, is it something you, once you started doing it with, you know, with, with type seven and traveling and everything like that, was it something you came to love or did you seek it out? Um, my wanderlust life. So that's what it's, it's what it seems like looking from the outside. Right. So I, I watch what you do and I see that you, you know, you're traveling all the time. I see the pictures of the airplane window and I see, you know, you're constantly somewhere else, somewhere new. Is, did you seek that or is, is it something that you found that you have to do for what you do? Uh, I definitely started seeking it because I was, um, when I was working at Petrolicious, we, we started, uh, you know, nobody was in the field uh, for Petrolicious except for the video, uh, in the video stringers. Um, so, you know, Petrolicious would ostensibly have live coverage of, of Pebble Beach Car Week or something, but nobody would actually be there. And it wouldn't be coming live. And I was, I was like, no, if we're going to be the best, you know, automotive, or the class, the best classic car automotive um, destination. I, I was like, we're going to be live and direct, and it's going to be coming from the field, and it's going to be honest, and it's going to be high quality. And uh, because of my camera setup, and because of the way I was editing, which was on mobile, I was able to get our social channels to be live uh at a time when like you know instagram live didn't exist yet like all this stuff didn't really exist yet um if you wanted to read an article or if you wanted to like if, if you were stuck at home and you wanted to see what was going on at the monterey historics or you know anything like that like you had to wait until the all the big magazines published their shit the next day or the next couple of weeks or whatever um i was like no 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 uh, this is all going to be happening live. So our Instagram stories were just filled with live stuff. And then our feed, you know, if you, I, I went to Goodwood for the first time in 2016 and was like, Oh my God, this is the greatest, this is heaven on earth. Why is no one covering this properly? Like no one to me had, would had been telling the story of what was going on there in a way that I digested. Yes. Great articles. Yes. All these great things are being written by all these great magazines, all this stuff, but nobody allowed me to feel like I was there. And um, it became my mission to make sure that everyone always felt like they were there. You know, it wasn't about me. Like it wasn't about me being a personality. Like I didn't give a shit about being on camera or being in the photo. I didn't care. That's not my vibe. Like I was like, I want to, I want to make sure that this world is, um, you know, justice is being done in the way that people are able to feel that they have experienced it without necessarily being there. And that became my signature. Um, and that, be and which meant that I had to, you know, a bit like a war reporter, you have to let, and obviously it's not a war uh, or anything close to it, but like you, you've got to get on the plane and you got to put on the jacket and you got to go. Um, and so that's what I started doing in 2015 and 2016. I started going and eventually I think I really started to piss off my team at Petrolicious because they were like, look, you're not even around. Like, you know, <laughs> Like we're paying you this salary and you're doing good work, but like you're, you know, what we got to rethink this. At which point I said, "You're right. I, it's time for me to leave." And they, and then, you know, uh, they made me a very generous offer to stay. And I just said, "Look, it's. Uh, I think I'm, I'm better suited just to being on the road and finding my own way." Um, and that was more of a, a gut decision. Plus, I also had some consulting work in my back pocket already. And I was like, look, I'm, I'm ready to rock. Like I'm, I'm going to go do this on my own now. And, uh, and they've done a great job since, and I, I've done my own thing since, and it's led you know to where I am today. Do you, do you get lonely? I mean, you're gone a lot. Yeah. Oh yeah, man, for sure. How do you, how do you deal with that being out on the road? Do you fill it with, uh, with what you're doing and the content that you create or how do you fill that hole or do you just not and just push it to the back of your mind? Yeah. Well, I'm a very social person, so that uh, I end up meeting a lot of people, and uh, and those people become family. And there's, you know, I've got people in places that you know, most people would never get the chance to go to that I that I'm desperate to go back to. You know, like I'm desperate to go back to Thailand again, desperate to go back to Hong Kong, desperate to go back to 
Sydney. I'm desperate to go back to all these places where I've, uh, you know, accumulated these great relationships with people that are really fantastic. And uh, unfortunately, you, once you really start having that kind of network and what you, once you really start having that level of, uh, you know, of uh, exposure to how great the world is, you realize how, how little time there is. And that's where the loneliness sets in, I guess. What's your favorite story to tell from all your travels? When you look back, if you could tell one story only, what would it be? A really good travel story. Man, there's so many. Every travel story is a great travel story. Uh, to have just one to tell you is, is uh, wouldn't do the others justice. I, I don't know. I'm trying to think what would be a good one. No, I think that's the answer. You know, you don't have to have an answer. I think the answer is maybe there just isn't one. Yeah, I've enjoyed being on the road so much over these last few years, and it's 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 really been the best life experience I could have asked for. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. I think that's all I have for you. Um, I think that just hearing, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is is the is the the point of the exploration. And um, you know, when I when I'm out and I'm traveling and stuff, I get I get lonely as well. I miss my family, I miss home, and everything like that. But you know, the trade-off that you get in, in terms of the reward is something that I feel as well. And um, hearing someone other's perspective on an exploration and why it matters is is what's really important to me. No, my pleasure, man. You seem like a really great guy, and I, I hope we get to spend some time together soon. I'd look, I'd really enjoy it. I'd love to have you come on some of my travels with me. I'd I'd love to take you on some rides in the car in the desert. Cool, man. Well, let's make it happen. All right. Well, take care of yourself. All right, Chris. Take care, guys. Yep. Bye bye. Many thanks to Ted for coming on. Yeah, uh, it was. It's nice to hear about, from someone who also likes to explore and travel and see new things and kind of get like a little bit of a background on him because it seems like a little bit of an enigma, you yeah, know. When you when, when you try and just see that he's traveling all over the world, you kind of where did this come from? Like, where's what what drives this guy? Um, I think it was interesting having him on for sure. All right, what else have you got for us? Yeah, we got to take a quick. Second, to talk about our sponsor, Worth USA. Worth is a family-owned global company that's been in operation since 1945. They offer high-quality, professional-grade shop supplies and tools with the industry-leading customer service. They have the world-class line of hand tools as well that's now available. It's the Zebra line of hand tools. I just used my driver from them. They're German-made tools with a lifetime warranty. Good stuff. Head over to worthusa.com to check out all of their products. And Chris, I know you have them, their products all over your car. I do. Right now. Do you have do. more undercoating that the guys are going to apply to your fenders as well? I did give them a little bit of undercoating to apply to the underside of the fenders. I said, hey, you guys, you got to put it on pretty heavy. It's yeah. going to see a lot of stones. So they, they're, <laughs> sure that will. Yeah. So they're going to put it on a little heavier underneath the fenders. Awesome. So Thank you, guys. Be sure to check us out on patreon.com slash overcrest. Also, head over to iTunes or wherever you're listening to us and leave a review for us. Let us know Hit how subscribe. we're doing. Hit yes. subscribe. Do it. And uh, if you feel like you don't want to sign up for Patreon, you just want to donate some money, we could we could really use it. Uh, just hit that donate button on our website, overcrestproductions.com. Thanks for tuning in, guys. We'll see you next week. Take care. Take care.